0: i'm alicia hi i'm sarah we're two english teachers reclaiming literacy through pop culture welcome to lit think so alicia this summer i actually was may wasn't it it was may my dear husband and i went to see our Friday date night to go to guardians of the galaxy volume three, leaving our very distraught children home alone because they were upset when they found out that they weren't going with us to see guardians of galaxy volume three. And I came out and I was like, darn it. Alicia said, no more Marvel. (laughs) And then to make our preteen and teenage children happy. We did take them to see it fully aware that our daughter was going to get completely distraught over everything about Rocket and all of his friends. But finally you watched it and you were like, it was good. And so here we are. Now we are are going to talk Marvel again for the first time in a long time because it was so much better than I ever anticipated it being. And there was so much great stuff in Guardians of the Galaxy. So... Starting off, what what do we want to talk about here?
1: Well, so let me let me rewind and say, like when I put hard nose, <laughs> I know in our Lit Think dialogue, I, I do probably usually we end up going back on them. <laughs> Some of that, you and I are both huge fans of the Marvel Universe. If I were also to say no more yeah. musicals, yeah. we would break that rule probably tomorrow. <laughs> I <laughs> if I think that the two of us, when it comes down to, well, Marvel is definitely a hemisphere of media that is doing a lot of amazing jobs to diversify story and expand representation as we look at how we define hero and culture and identity and story. There's also, I mean, we only have so many episodes in a season. So all of that to say, yes, that's true. We also, we fight two timelines. Sarah sees things in theaters these days. I wait until they show up on my streaming services. So, Hey, we have Disney plus because we have tiny humans. So when we saw guardians three as our family, the two of us, AKA kiddo was in bed. The thing that really struck me about this third movie in this trilogy, first of all, interestingly, when we say there's so much rich in this film, I would not say the soundtrack is one of the strengths of this film. So maybe we can come back to that. The
0: 90s teenager in me was really happy.
1: But they left out so many of like the big hits. And I'll tell you, I mean, I was around in the 90s too, Sarah. I didn't recognize most of the songs until the end of the movie. By the time they got to the Beastie Boys, I was like, all right, now I'm jamming. But up before that, I was like, what are we doing, people? I, I, I didn't know any songs, really. I knew a few of the hits in the first two movies, and yet, I was jamming, you know, like it was a vibe. I didn't feel the vibe as much in this one, so there, there's that. We can circle back to that if we need to. But the lit thinker in me really latched on to this story because while it is the third film in this trilogy, and we know that most of the main cast is stepping away from their guardian roles after this film, it is arguably the truest origin story that we have received in this trilogy and from Marvel in general in a while. And that I think is is just a really, so that's maybe a a follow-up question for you, Sarah. Where else do we see origin stories? Like in classic literature, if we kind of think about this definition of an origin story, what do I mean? What do we mean by origin story? And why is this? I mean, it's Rocket's origin story, but what do we mean by that?
0: One of the ones I've enjoyed doing and haven't done in a long time just because it hasn't fit with the classes I've been teaching, but we do that with King Arthur because Arthurian legend has, there's so many literary allusions to Arthurian legend. There's so many cultural allusions to Arthurian legend. And so giving the backstory of King Arthur and how he pulled the sword from the stone um, or how he got the sword from the lady of the lake, whatever version of the legend you want to work with. Uh, we've had origin stories with him.
1: Any mythology, I think. The reason we as English teachers enjoy teaching mythology is because it has some element of that origin story. Um, Native American mythology has a lot of like, this is how this exists in the world. A lot of Greek one-off mythology pieces. This is why this thing functions this way in our world. But then it's even interesting. We think about like, okay. Odysseus. We don't get Odysseus's origin story when we teach the Odyssey. We teach the sequel.
0: We do. We don't teach anything about the Trojan War. Right. We teach that he went to Troy and he right. fought it, but we don't teach how he got, how any of them got to where they are. Yeah. And that, I guess when you talk about the mythology, that's an interesting one because we don't always think about mythology as being an origin story, but I talked about that with students for years when I taught creation myths, when you know we talked about native American myths and looking at indigenous cultures and The parallels between a lot of those myths, but also a lot of those myths that are also paralleled then to Judeo-Christian myth. But then also, not just that, but the how everything, how animals came to be, and how animals came to be seen a certain way in the culture. I love the coyote myths. I think that they are fascinating. Look at an animal that has caused as a trick is is a trickster and has caused a lot of problems for a lot of. People in past and even present. You know, coyotes, I have, have a friend who's had a cat taken by a coyote in Las Vegas. You know, it's <laughs> just like, so we see some of those origin myths coming up too. And we like to know where things came from. We just do. We like to know. And for me, Star Wars, everybody wanted those first three Star Wars movies to come out. Like, if I, okay, so talk about origin myth. Like, everyone wanted those first three Star Wars movies, which were really the, Second, three Star Wars movies, but just going in order of timeline of events, they wanted them because they wanted to know how does Darth Vader get to be Darth Vader? How does he go from the Anakin Skywalker that Obi Wan Kenobi knew and loved and become this badass who is
1: destroying everything? So I think you bring up two really interesting ideas, maybe three that I want to kind of pull from what you're saying. One. This is I think part of why you and I love Marvel stories often more often than DC stories is because Marvel stories are always going to try and complicate your understanding of the villain by helping you understand how they became a villain. Right? A good origin story really wrestles with that how. But and it could be how someone ended up this way or how the world works or how relationships function. So that's really then kind of the next piece I wanted to bring up is I think what's so beautiful and important that you also point out is that origin stories are innately communal. Even if you, your origin story focuses on one person, it's how that person then folds into a community and assumes a specific role. And so, therefore, coming back to Rocket and Guardians 3, the reason we need his origin story is we need to understand not just why is he a talking raccoon, but why is he the logical new leader of the Guardians as... Peter steps back and moves on. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't see that as being a
0: possibility at the beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the movie, you're not like, you're not seeing, oh, we're going to see Rocket get past the torch. and We're going to see him move on with his life. And and he's going to be leading everybody. You just are trying to figure out why this poor little cute raccoon is in a cage with all of these other monstrosities that have been created by the high evolutionary. and. It it brings up some questions with origin myths. We talked about creation myths. It brings up some questions about creator versus creation. Um Who's doing it, what happens when someone also tries to control what they create. And then it ends up falling flat. The high evolutionary tries world after world after world to create this perfect utopia. And it falls apart every time because you can... Not create, you can't force something and you can't control it. And he's trying to control something he can't, and Rocket, he really can't control. And it drives him crazy that this
1: thing he created that he was a part of cannot be controlled. So that's I mean, the third piece I was going to bring up. And I mean, you essentially just brought it up. So I, now I, I have to say it. The reality is, origin stories are innately spiritual. And I say that because I've really been leaning on the definition of spirituality as a space where you hold both life and death in the same hand. It's the only space in our world where we can do that. And as you look at an origin story, sometimes you are literally looking at a birth, but you're also often looking at what has to die in a person for them to be reborn. It is so much, it's that cyclical snake eating its own tail reality that is spirituality. You have to hold both. And you look at the high evolutionary, I mean, it's not just creator versus creation. It's also, he's consistently making sentient beings. And then when they exhibit their free will, he's done with them. As soon as they show any sign of autonomy, he says, well, clearly you are no longer perfect. And isn't that also, without going into any specific belief system, isn't that such a beautiful and powerful dialogue around what whole love actually looks like in that pure whole love should be, I love you even as you exhibit your free will, even as you don't always make the right decision, even as you sometimes fight the hand that feeds you because I gave you that will. That's something else that I gave you in, in my making of you.
0: Well, I was going to say in the creation of rocket, What we see is we also see because of the creator creation relationship, there is in creation, a family is always created, right? Whether it's a family that you want or not, like that's just, you're born into a family. It's your family of origin. It's the family that created you physically. So we see the family that creates you physically, And that is Rocket with all the other baby raccoons. Like he gets picked out from this litter of baby raccoons that are his actual siblings. And then he is taken from them and separated from them. And as a result, he begets his first of his second chosen family. So over the course of time, Rocket gets, you could argue he gets several chosen families, I guess, throughout the time that we know of him in the Guardians of the Universe. But, you know, he gets his first chosen family with that is led by Lila and all the other animals that have been mutated and have been changed and are essentially eventually killed in front of him. He sees their death, so he loses his chosen family. But they bring him in. They accept him as he is. It doesn't matter that he is mutated. They love him as he is.
1: The only thing I'm going to push back at is there's the interesting, each time a family is born, a new version of Rocket is also born. So when we say that his first chosen family accepts him as he is, as a mutation, well, one, they too are mutated. And two, there's the fact that Rocket is no longer the non-sentient raccoon that existed prior to this. He is now a raccoon who has higher brain function and different mobility. And then similarly, the Rocket who escapes from all of that trauma and ends up aligning with Groot and then beating the rest of the Guardians, that's a completely different Rocket. That's version three of Rocket that now exists. And and coming back to that idea of spirituality, we get Rocket's origin story as he's dying, right? Like we are holding his birth, his his reiterated births at the same time that we don't know if he's going to survive until the end of the film.
0: Well, and you even see him change in the family as his next chosen family evolves. Because for a while it's just him and Groot, and Groot is kind of like the perfect ally for him. It's the perfect sidekick for him because Groot will just do whatever he says. Right? He he just he goes along with it. He's glad to be along for the ride, and he will d- he will do whatever Rocket says. But he'll also defend Rocket to the death. Like he will. Do whatever he has to, and that doesn't change he will do whatever he has to do to protect rocket which is why rocket struggles so much when he ends up with the other guardians and none of them want to be together they're not even the guardians yet they're just kind of all thrown together on this ship and peter wants to be in charge and he's like wait i've always been in charge you know he has this attitude that because of his life after his escape no he should be the one in charge. When in all actuality, yes, he is the smartest one of the bunch probably. And he probably has the best temperament out of all of them in some ways, but really Peter's the one who needs to lead them at that moment. That is Peter's moment. That is, he is the right person for the job at that time. And it's another growth moment for rocket that he is willing to take a step back and follow instead of lead. So that you see that, transition, it's a fourth transition almost for him when he takes that step back and says, Okay, I'll follow you. He still has some issues with that from time to time, but he's going to do it. And then as the torch is passed on to him, which is where we get to legacy, but as the torch is passed on to him, as Peter's like, This is this is your crew now. You have earned it. You've shown that you can do it and you are ready for this. And I can't do this anymore. And even if I were to, I think honestly, even if Peter were to stay, I think Peter knows that he's not the right person to lead them anymore because he's just been a hot mess an absolute hot mess. Ever since Gamora ran off with the ravagers ever since the snap ever since end game. Like he just, he lost himself when he lost Gamora and he finally can see that. And he knows that he's not the right
1: person to lead anymore. Peter if we're talking about kind of an opposite Bechdel test, Peter can't really talk about, he has no identity outside of his romantic relationship anymore. So uh, yes, time for him to take a step back and figure out who Peter is, which has been true for all three films. But I I think you bring up another interesting idea as we think about Rocket. Part of why he struggles with accepting Peter's leadership is because he blindly accepted the higher evolutionary's leadership. He blindly accepted Lila's leadership. He has followed leaders, just because someone else spoke up before him and he said, okay, great. Like that, I, I've decided that's just what I should do. He was younger. He was naive. He said that that's just how power structures work. But by the time he meets Peter, he's like, uh, uh-uh. uh I have been injured <laughs> by being a follower like emotionally and physically. And I, I can't just willy nilly say, okay, you have a ship. Great. I'll follow you. That's not how he works anymore. So, I mean, of course, I mean, as you're talking about, you know, your, your daughter crying through this film, I mean, I cried through most of this film. This is also very much a story about trauma, as we're talking about origin stories, you know, Anakin's origin story in Star Wars. It, it, so many of these are, again, how is a person broken? And how do their broken parts reform to become their new iteration? And so we see, you know, Rocket, who's always been this very snarky, always has the great one-liner, I'm-not-a-raccoon notes in all of the other movies and any place where we've seen him in the Marvel Universe, we see him at his most vulnerable repeatedly throughout this film. And that's part of, because it's an exact antithesis to what we have seen before of Rocket, that's part of why it is so powerful. And it gives us a, a bigger scope of Rocket's full range instead of just this one liner snarky raccoon. Which
0: makes it fun. It also is what had me thinking the whole time I was watching it because I was watching his story unfold and I loved seeing the torch get passed. I loved seeing him go from family to, well, from one family to the next. Nice. And as difficult as it is, yeah, I mean, you talk about the trauma that he underwent in watching it. One family killed the raccoons, the next family killed all the other mutants um, watching other worlds get destroyed by the high evolutionary and knowing that he could have been one of them on those worlds. That's another traumatic moment for him mm-hmm. and watching his, and he went through everything with this snap, which takes us all the way back to, you know, and Avengers Endgame, But he watched his fa- that family fell apart too part of the family died. So, and he had added to the family because the Avengers had become kind of like another family for him. So he had lost members of the Avengers as well. And then those that were left were also broken. So even though Peter's there, he's not there, you know, he was, he wasn't there. He wasn't with him. And you have Nebula there, but Nebula's always kind of like hated everybody. And, she's going through her own journey of figuring out who she is away from Gamora, who she is without her sister, who has always been her exact opposite and kind of been the snarky balance to her. And so, and Drax is also going through his own trauma that he's also dealing with and that he's lost his family and he hasn't told anybody about the family that he's lost. So we just see all of these people we have hurting people. I think this was interesting about guardians, honestly, we're getting down to the, the nitty gritty of the whole guardians universe is you have a family of hurt people who choose to use that hurt for good, as opposed to using that hurt to hurt each other, which is an interesting also commentary on, on
1: healing and how to heal from that trauma. I was going to say, so if, if you can bear with me, I think one of the origin stories we haven't mentioned yet, as we're talking about origin stories that you and I both love, Frankenstein, if we're fully honest, is an origin story. But the reason it's an origin story is because of the frame story structure. It's because, sure, we see Victor make the monster, but then the monster disappears. The origin story we get is when Victor reunites with the creature. The creature's like, "Well, you want to know how I am, how I am? Let me tell you, sit down, pull up a log. And we get an origin story. (laughs) Arguably, Guardians 3 is also a frame story because we are constantly, you know, we have Rocket in the present and we have these flashbacks. Flashbacks can be a form of frame story. And they very much function like that in this film because we're constantly bumping back and forth between these two layers of the story. Right. But then coming back to what you're saying, it's also very much a story repeatedly about I have been hurt. And yet our version of heroism for all of these people is that I am choosing to not continue my hurt. And so, so much of this film is how does Rocket choose not to carry his hurt back out into the world and instead make a better space for other people, which all of that comes back to our concept of legacy. So before we go any further, Sarah, I'm curious, how do you define the word legacy?
0: The simplest way I would define legacy would be passing the torch from one, not even generation. I think generational legacy is there. I mean, we talk about fathers passing it on, fathers and mothers passing it on to their children. So we talk about generational legacy a lot throughout history. That's just Mm -hmm. been the thing. But it's also this idea of passing something that you have created and something that you have taken ownership of yeah. and saying it's time for the next generation to take it. And let's be honest, it's something we struggle. I think it's something people struggle with because there is a letting go of control. We're, I've seen it. It's the tiny. i am seeing this while we're watching Yellowstone. Which you haven't watched yet. But as he has as, as watching Yellowstone, it's just that there's a legacy that's been passed on and on and on to John Dutton. And he wants to pass that, that legacy on to his children. But the world has changed and he doesn't know how to change the definition of what that legacy means. And so it, that can also make things really complicated. But The Guardians isn't going to go away. Peter is passing that along to Rocket because the guardians need to keep going.
1: So I was going to say, I'm going to push back and say legacy. Yes, there's innately family legacy. I think that's what maybe what we're most familiar with. But I'm also going to say, I think you and I, both as teachers who have left schools, we have a concept of legacy because that is one of, I think one of the hardest points when a teacher considers leaving a school is how will I be remembered? A huge part of legacy is memory. Memory. And then it's relationship. I would actually break down legacy into those two things. Of course, it, it is power and, and connection and, and tradition, which is some of what you're talking about in a family element. But I think on a bigger scale, so often we see this in guardians. And on a professional scale, anytime you leave, anytime you know, you step back from any sort of relationship, I think it, it is very much about that idea of memory and and connection and how will those continue on beyond who we are like in that base point or you know when we are in person and can control I think that how good, people perceive us. That brings up a really good point. And if we're gonna talk about
0: carrying on that legacy beyond the hurt and also the the way that they're working past their trauma, I think it's an interesting case with Adam Warlock. Is an interesting case of someone who has inflicted a lot of hurt, mm-hmm. but also been hurt mm-hmm. as he's been inflicting that hurt. Mm-hmm. And he finds forgiveness and acceptance in a group he tried to kill mm-hmm. and decides, well, then this is where I want to be. And his trauma then is healed by the pe- very people that he did inflict some trauma onto. Mm-hmm. Because it, it and that's an interesting way to carry on that that legacy because there's been a lot of forgiveness that's had to happen in this Guardians group. They've had to do a lot of I mean, they brought Nebula in and Nebula tried to kill them all too. So they, you know, they've brought people in already that have tried to destroy them, and that is part of their legacy. Part of their legacy is a chance for forgiveness and mm-hmm. renewal and doing some good in the world. Or the galaxy
1: doing some good in the galaxy. <laughs> so I think kind of maybe this is a really a good point for us to end on. But I love Brene Brown talks about how she raised her children. She taught them that you are always required to say that you're sorry, but you're never required to say I forgive you. You're never required to give someone forgiveness because it, and when we're taught that you're innately I'm sorry, I forgive you, that forgiveness often isn't genuine. Forgiveness takes time. It takes relationship. It takes healing. And The Guardians movies repeatedly point out, because forgiveness is conscious, because it is something that can build or break down relationships, when you choose forgiveness, it opens doors and creates a space for, as we're talking about, new families, new origins, new beginnings, and opens up a new cycle of what could be.
0: Yeah. It was... Fun and beautiful and thought provoking all at the same time. And I, maybe it wasn't the best of the three soundtracks, but I think that's one of the things that they did so well with all three guardians is that, you know, we both have done this. We've both done this with our students where we've had them create soundtracks for something that we're studying, you know, try to match music to the literature and match music to their personality and and what they're going through. And it just has been such a great example of how music, it becomes a character in the story almost. And that's just, I think that's been one of the most fun parts about the trilogy is the way that music is as much a character in many ways as the characters themselves.
1: And maybe I should say part of why I struggled with the music, if we want to circle back to that. The mu- In the first two movies, so much of the music, it's Peter's relationship to the music, which therefore the music represents his mother. It represents, you know, as he yeah. shares it with Gamora. It's even as he gets the iPod. Um, we have repeatedly someone is giving. It's a zoom. He's thinking yes. about his relationship to them as he's thinking about that music. Right. Are you cracking yourself up here, Sarah? Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: I am because for us pers- I, yeah, because For us personally, we had a Zune. And so watching Guardians and watching him transition from the Walkman to the Zune just made our hearts so happy because we were like, it's a Zune and it's alive. Like it's working. And ours died a few years ago. And when it died, it was like this music collection that we've been so proud of. And we had our, it was our soundtrack that we had taken everywhere with us. And then all of a sudden it was dead.
1: I was going to say, I still have my external hard drive that has all of my music that I own. And I say all the time to Jamie, it's not like I'm ever going to play it again, but I I don't want to delete it because I spent so many years curating, right? These files, these playlists. Anyway, um, so then coming back to Guardians 3, though, The music exists. And of course, like they're each picking songs at different times. And even at the end, you know, when Rocket is with his new series of Guardians, they're all talking about their favorite songs. But it doesn't feel the same as it did in the first two movies, as far as that, like, deep, as we're talking about the music as a character, music was a character in more of the background, I felt, I think, in this movie, compared to. the the front row it took in the other two movies.
0: That is probably true. But I will say this in terms of legacy. It's interesting that this becomes the final legacy because Peter hands the Zune off to Rocket and it's his. So that becomes like the last, it's the last physical passing along of that legacy and saying not only are you leading the group, but I'm giving you the music too. The music is in your hands now. You get to decide what to listen to. You guys make the soundtrack now. <laughs> it's fun.
1: All right. Yeah, I, I'm laughing now, Sarah, too, looking at this because you and I both were like, mm, maybe we'll be able to get a whole episode out of this. Or we both enjoyed it, but we'll see. And I'm saying, I think we need to cut us off now or else we're going to keep going. Uh, thank you. I've enjoyed this discussion a lot. I think it went a lot of places we didn't expect. But let's go ahead and transition to what, have you, what are you enjoying right now outside of Guardians 3? Well,
0: this... Two interesting choices that actually semi-go with this whole conversation. So um, I I don't even know why I decided to pick it up. Actually, I do know why. I had read another book that had mentioned Ezra Klein's book, Why We're, why We're Polarized. And um, it was a book about the environment. And I was just kind of like, I want to, uh, to read this. I think it's a good one to read it. And so I did. I listened to it. And it was so good. Like, because I want to read things that offer solutions and are solutions based. And it is, it is solutions based. It wants to challenge you to think about the world that we live in and how can we fix this as opposed to just continue to dig in deeper. So I highly recommend it if you're looking for a good political read before next year, uh, 2024, I suggest it. Uh, and then we are slowly working our way back through the walking dead. And we're finally, I think on season nine, season eight, I don't know. We stopped season nine and we just kind of gave up because I had some character deaths that I was not happy about. And I just was like, I'm done. I'm moving on. And so we didn't keep watching it. And then my husband started watching it with our kids. So now we're watching it. So we're going back through it. And, There are some moments that I'm like, yeah, I get why we stopped. But then there's also been some good moments where I just am constantly struck by how they kept bringing back this idea of humans being the monsters and what do you do and how do you move forward when the world is falling apart, which it has, it's been, it's been good to rewatch. And so we'll, keep watching and we'll actually finish the series now. So I think we're actually going to finish it now. It means that we're putting off Ahsoka, but I think I need to give the kids, tell the kids it's time to take a break from the gore and pick up some lightsaber gore instead. (laughs) So we'll see what happens with
1: that. But
0: yeah, I'm enjoying it and it's, it's been good to get back through it.
1: So what about you? Well, and let's just both be honest as lovers of monster stories and monster origin stories, aren't arguably all monster stories about how humans are the real monsters. You know, that yes. At the end of the day. Yeah we, yeah. we aren't as great as we think we are. Like part of why a good monster story is so good is because it should be a deep serving of hum- humble pie. Well, so on that mm-hmm. note, yep. Mm, arguably, I don't know. <laughs> I have a, I have a light piece and a not so light piece. So Futurama has a new season on Hulu. It's not amazing. Like, it's kind of You've like, okay, that. We're, we're back in Futurama. It, it, okay, like, sure. It's been a lighthearted thing to watch in the evenings. It's seems you know, it's a half hour. Why not? Uh, my partner and I have had it on in the background and both kind of been like, oh, so that happened in that episode. Ugh. And it's a lot of, I think, one-offs because they don't know if they're going to continue and, hey, that's okay. I mean, that's kind of why you come to a space like The Simpsons and the Futurama anyway. You're not coming for depth, right? You're just kind of coming for like, oh, that was... I was distracted for 30 minutes and I can go back to my life. But then a more real world piece that totally swept me away. I know Melinda Lowe from her YA book, Ash, which is a queer reinterpretation of the Cinderella story. And I read it years ago. This book last night at the Telegraph Club, it came out a few years ago, but it showed up on one of my lists of like YA books you need to read. It's a historical fiction piece about an Asian American girl living in San Francisco and getting involved in uh, queer night culture, like queer nightclub culture in that time. And the author, like the author had an author's note at the end. She did a lot of research for this book, and it very much shows, I mean, it's just it's a, it's a beautiful queer love story, but it's also just as much a really rich telling of queer culture in this part of the world at this time battling as well. I mean, coming from an AAPI family, her father is an immigrant. There's dialogue on communism. I mean, there's just, there's so many pieces to pull apart in the story that are handled so, so tenderly and reverently and powerfully. It's a very, very, very good book. I cannot recommend enough. Last night at the Telegraph Club, very, very, very good. But once again, Sarah, you and I could talk about books about... (laughs) media for forever and if you want to always check out more of what we're doing we fill our social media with recommendations with tips and tricks of what we are loving and doing you should always check us out on the socials specifically facebook and instagram at like Think podcast and subscribe to our Substack because we also we just keep talking there our heads are full of thoughts we want to share them with you
0: <laughs> this has been sarah and alicia signing off keep on looking thinking people